Please turn with me in the Holy Scriptures to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the third chapter, Malachi chapter 3. It would take more than one sermon to do full justice to these 18 verses and all that they have for us. There are about four lessons And I want to end up focusing on verse 3, and so I'm changing my approach before you. Let's cover the chapter and come back to the third verse. Malachi, the third chapter. The best understanding to get of this third chapter is to read the last verse of chapter 2 and the last verse of chapter 3 so that you have a collar on the context, and you'll know what chapter 3 is about. It is not popular to preach about God being a God of judgment. It is not popular to preach about Jesus Christ coming in judgment. But Malachi chapter 3 is about Jesus Christ coming in judgment at His first coming. That's why I began earlier this assembly with Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, where God said to Moses, I will raise up a prophet like unto you, taken from among your brethren. He will be one of the Israelites, and he will speak everything that I command him. But those who do not regard what he has to say shall be destroyed from among the people. And the Lord Jesus Christ looked upon the city of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 17 and said, Because you knew not the time of your visitation... This city shall soon be encompassed with armies and a ditch dug around it and its walls pulled down. Because you did not know the time of your visitation, I will lay it even with the ground. And the commander of the twelfth legion drew a plow across the top of Mount Zion. Now, do you know how many foundations are left in the soil when you can draw a plow across the top of a mountain where a city had once been? They tore that thing down to the ground and leveled it just like the Lord Jesus Christ said because they did not know the time of his first visitation. Let me read the last verse of chapter 2 and the last verse of chapter 3. I hope you'll see that they're connected, and what is in between is the explanation. Malachi 2.17 Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? The prophet Malachi addresses recovered Israel, Judah, and Benjamin, and accuses them of wearying the Lord with their words, their philosophy, their attitude, toward the wicked among the nation of Israel. That they they would call them good in the sight of the Lord, You know that our nation today says the innate goodness of man. There is not innate goodness of man. There is innate depravity of man. And where is the God of judgment? They wearied him with that question. Verse 18 of chapter 3. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. If you are unable to see the righteousness of God and his dealings with men and you ask the foolish, atheistical question, where is the God of judgment? 
The answer is going to be in chapter 3. Because you will be able to discern that there is a difference between the righteous and the wicked. There is a difference between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Now let's look at this third chapter very quickly. And then come back to the third verse and go out of here. Purified sons of Levi. For those of you that love the Messiah, do you love the third verse? Let me read to you the first six and get the first lesson of chapter 3. And please notice the two beholds in verse 1. It's an, a, an event of momentous importance. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant... Whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. The first lesson, Jesus Christ's first coming was not pleasant for the mocking wicked of Judah. This is Jesus Christ's first coming, which is very visible. Because this passage is quoted in the New Testament about John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. In verse 1, 2, beholds. Stop, look, and pay attention to the truth of what I'm about to give you. The question that they asked in the last verse of chapter 2, where is the God of judgment? God delights in these wicked people. God doesn't care how we live. Where is the God of judgment you prophets are always talking about? Malachi has an answer for them. He's coming real soon. But before he comes, he's going to send his messenger. So verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold, look at this, I will send my messenger, which is John the Baptist, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the New Testament teaches this plainly, and I'm not going to chase you all over to prove the point. I just hope that you'll remember that this is quoted in in Mark chapter 1 and verse 2, and it says, as it is written in the prophets about the ministry of John the Baptist, but in every other Bible version except your King James Bible, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. But Isaiah never wrote it. Malachi wrote it. And so when you look at the NIV, and it says, as it is written in Isaiah, look at its footnote at the bottom of the page 
where it gives the reference Malachi 3.1. I'm sorry for chasing that, but it's just too precious to me. In their footnotes, they'll tell you that it comes from Malachi 3.1, which is an admission that their text is incorrect. Sweet. Thank you, Lord. Behold, you want to know where the God of judgment is. I will send John the Baptist, and he will announce my coming, and get some ready for my arrival. And the Lord Jesus Christ, whom ye seek, this is sarcasm. This is an answer to the question of verse 17 of chapter 2. He is describing Jesus coming as a God of judgment. He is not describing Jesus in this verse coming as a Savior. He will describe that in a few verses, and he will mention that in verse 4, that he will arise with healing in his wings for a different category of person in Israel. This is for those that are asking, where is the God of judgment? Whom ye seek is sarcastic. Jesus Christ shall suddenly come to his temple. And that coming to his temple is not to surprise them with lots of gifts. That suddenly coming to his temple is coming with judgment in which he would defy the leaders of that temple, drive out the money changers of that temple, destroy the veil in that temple, and then level that temple. He would suddenly come to the temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, sarcastically mocking the wicked, though the righteous did delight in him, and though they did seek him, that is not the immediate context, and context is our master. Jesus is here being described as coming in judgment. And I want you to remember that the Bible says, Think not that I came to bring peace on earth. I came not to bring peace but a sword. I want you to remember John chapter 5 where the apostle of love said of the Lord Jesus Christ, and quoting Jesus Christ, that all judgment was given unto the Son at His first coming. And He judged in that nation by His preaching and then by His military crushing of that nation. Behold, He shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. God Himself would perform it. But who may abide the day of His coming? And who shall stand... When he appeareth, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. A refiner's fire must be hot enough to melt a metal in order for the impure metals to leave the precious metal that is being refined. It is a very hot furnace. And he is going to come as a very hot furnace. Remember with me the ministry of John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, you barely get the New Testament opened. And the Pharisees came out to question John the Baptist about his baptismal authority. And he said, what are you doing out here? Are you coming out here to flee from the wrath to come? And he was not describing the second coming. He was describing the first coming. Because he would go on to elaborate by saying the axe is now laid to the root of the tree. It was presently preparing to chop the tree down. And the fan is in his hand. The refining fire to burn up the enemies of God. Jesus Christ had the fan in his hand to flame, to to fan the the refiner's fire into full flame to burn up the chaff, but the wheat would be gathered into his barn. Matthew chapter 3. Do you all understand Matthew chapter 3? It is not talking about the second coming, it's talking about the first coming. That is the reason they cannot admit that Elijah the prophet at the end of chapter 4 is John the Baptist. 
the minute that they would admit that Elijah the prophet at the end of chapter 4 is John the Baptist would require them to admit that the great and terrible day of the Lord described in context with John the Baptist was something other than the second coming. John the Baptist was not warning of something coming 2,000 plus years later. John the Baptist was warning of something that was coming upon his generation because his purpose was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest the Lord come and smite the earth with a curse, which he did. Some turned, but most didn't. This is what is being described here by way of prophecy. Let's skip verse 3. It's my favorite this week. Thank you, my brother Scott. Jerry, your brother Scott sends greetings. All of you, brother Scott sends greetings. His love of the Lord has not waned. We had a wonderful time on the phone on my Monday, his Tuesday. And it messed me up. I couldn't forget Malachi chapter 3 and the third verse. We're going to come back to it. Verse 4. Oh, we want that when we come back. Verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment. This is the Lord Jesus Christ coming, representing God as the man chosen out of the people. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers. And it goes on to describe a list of sins that Jesus Christ would come to destroy, first of all, with the sword of his mouth, and then with the Roman armies to wreak vengeance on Israel. For I am the Lord, I change not. I am the God of judgment. I am the God of judgment that has judged this nation numerous times. I am the God of judgment that took this nation into captivity. I am the God of judgment that brought this nation back from captivity. And the only reason that you are not consumed is because I have long-suffering as part of my nature. That is what that sixth verse is saying. When you go back and you read where he is the God of judgment in Exodus chapter 34, when God showed his glory to Moses, and in Nahum chapter 1, he says he cannot by any means clear the guilty or acquit the wicked. But in both places, where he cannot clear the guilty or acquit the wicked, he says, the Lord, the Lord, full of mercy and long-suffering. I am the Lord. I am the Lord of judgment. I don't change. I'm the God that has always dealt with this nation severely when they deserved it. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed because I also have long-suffering as part of my nature. Because judgment is the subject of verses 1 through 6, except for 3 and 4. I mean, 2 and th- Two and three, which we're going to come... No, three and four is what I want to limit myself to when we come back to this first lesson. The first lesson is Jesus Christ's first coming was not pleasant for the mocking wicked. He destroyed them on the Sermon on the Mount by revealing the hypocrisy and the error of their religion. He could answer the questions of the doctors of the law. He took, He handled the money changers. Jesus Christ destroyed them with the breath of His mouth and His preaching... No other, no man ever spake like him. Amen. The people were astonished at the power and authority that Jesus Christ addressed the religious issues of his day in the Sermon on the Mount. It says so in the last two verses. But this is John the Baptist, C.I. Schofield and others who think that this is the second coming of Jesus Christ because it doesn't fit their idea of what happened the first time because they don't know the historical facts miss the chapter. Don't you ever be confused about this chapter. This is not the second coming. This is the first coming. This is John the Baptist and Jesus 2,000 years ago. 
We'll come back to verses 3 and 4. The next lesson. Where is the God of judgment? It doesn't matter how we live. Where is the God of judgment? We can call the wicked good. God doesn't care. First answer, He is coming suddenly to His temple and then He will wreak vengeance on all those that know not God and that was the first coming. Second lesson, one of the sins that they were committing that we want to take note of and pass on. And that sin was they were being unfaithful in their giving. We're going to read verses 7 through 12. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Let me make a few comments on this second lesson, that one of their crimes for which he is going to hold them accountable is their giving of tithes and offerings, which the whole nation was unfaithful in doing, and he called it robbing God. Will a man rob God? Well, I would never steal. You rob from God when you do not give, and give scripturally, and give cheerfully, and give generously. Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the first fruits of all thine increase. Will a man rob God? But I want you to notice something about the God of judgment that's described here in Malachi 3. Look at that seventh verse. The Lord God, through the prophet Malachi, accuses the nation of perpetual rebellion. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. You are just one stubborn, rebellious, wicked nation. But watch. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. When he uses the title the Lord of hosts, it means commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven. He has a host in heaven. He has an innumerable army, one of which can split this little ball of water and dirt in half. He's the Lord of hosts, but notice what he says. Return unto me, and I will return unto you. Whenever you feel that you are far from God or that God is far from you, whenever you know that your sins have separated between you and God, remember this. Remember when he is dealing with himself as the God of judgment and answering the question, where is the God of judgment? He says, return unto me, and I will return unto you. Is that wonderful? Draw nigh unto God, and he shall draw nigh unto you. Is that, that's wonderful. That the God of judgment 
is of such a nature that he honors repentance. And if we repent, he will draw nigh to us. But this, these people didn't say, we have sinned. They should have. We have sinned. They said, wherein shall we return? We're decent Christians. What do you mean we need to repent? I'm not that bad of a person. What do I need to repent for? Will a man rob God? Just like the rich young ruler. What do I need to do that I'm not already doing? I'm a good Christian. So the prophet picks on one little point. A point that hurts most people. They don't like to give. And it's amazing and it's beautiful. And it confirms the word of God. Those that don't give, don't make. And I love it. I've watched it my whole life. The more you give, the more you'll make. It's the best investment you'll ever make. R.G. Letourneau. He decided he might as well give 90% to the Lord and keep the tithe. He'd give 90. He got richer and richer and richer. They said, how? He says, well, I I shovel it to the Lord and He shovels it right back to me. But the Lord's got a bigger shovel. That's what his business was. He invented all the heavy earth-moving equipment in the early 20th century. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. Ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You have robbed me. Tithes, a tenth, required by the law of Moses for them to give of all their increase in herds and fields to give at the temple, to give at the tabernacle, a tithe. 10%. Then offerings. Offerings are free will offerings. They're called free will offerings because they weren't required by the law. They were some, they were for somebody who wanted to give something above and beyond the tithe that was required. So they would give an offering. Just an extra special sacrifice to the Lord. No man ever loses for that. Did did David die a pauper because he raised money his entire life to build the temple of God? Or does the Bible say that David died very rich, though the gifts he gave to the temple are the largest quantities of money ever found in anywhere in the Old Testament? Did Abraham get ahead by coming back from the defeat of the four kings and giving 10% of all to Melchizedek? What does it say of him? He died a very rich man. We are not talking about riches today because we couldn't really care very much about that. But it's just a fact of God's word that if you'll honor him with tithes and offerings, that he will open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. You say that's impossible. When you get to heaven, check out Peter. Ask Peter about his two fishing expeditions when the Lord had a word for him. Sons, did you take anything during the night? No, we've labored all night and we've taken nothing, not a single fish. Cast your nets on the other side. Go short instead of long. (laughs) Forgive me. Cast your nets on the other side. What happened? Beautiful. There's boats sinking. He's calling his partners over. He's filling their boats with, sh- with fish. Their boats are sinking. He falls on his knees and thanks the Lord and praises Him and tells Him, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He can't pour you out a blessing. 
that you won't have room to receive? He didn't have room to receive it, and it happened to him twice. Check it out when you get to heaven. But in the meantime, just read the Bible about it. Believe it. The Bible says in Luke chapter 6 that if you give, the Lord will give back to you, and He'll give a, a, a good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. I know I've said this many times, but my dear brothers and sisters who have heard it many times, remember that I have little children here that I need to repeat this for. And newer members, you know on the box of your cereal that you have at the table, it says, before you open it, it has a little warning so that you won't be shocked. It says, contents may have settled during shipping. Because they don't want you to open that great big box of Fruit Loops and find that the cereal is one-third or one-half of the way down in the box. So it has a little message that says, contents may have settled during shipping. But in Luke chapter 6, the Lord wants you to think about it this way. I shake it like it's at a hardware store in a paint mixer. I shake it. I jump on it. I give a full measure first of all, and it's still overflowing when I give. Give, and it shall be given unto you, is what the Bible says. A rule. The best investment you'll ever make is giving to the Lord. You say, I can't figure it out. No one can figure it out. Because God overrules math. God overrules natural wisdom to prove this point. No Harvard MBA knows it. No calculator can compute it. No what-if analysis can help you understand it. It is by divine order that if you'll honor Him, because He knows how hard it is for some people to touch their wallets, if you'll honor Him, He'll honor you. This nation was denying Him in tithes and offerings, so He said, you're robbing me. You want to know where you ought to return and to save yourself from judgment? Let's start with this matter, the same one my son is going to use with the rich young ruler. Let's try money for a minute. How generous are you and how liberal are you in scattering your money to the Lord? And he says in verse 10, well, verse 9, ye are cursed with a curse. You are not getting ahead because I'm against you financially. Verse 10, bring the tithes into my storehouse and prove me. Try me. I dare you. Test me. Put me on trial. This is my God. I'm thankful I was taught about R.G. Letourneau when I was single digits. I don't care that it did come from a Sunday school paper, but I'm thankful that I learned about that man and his zeal for giving when I was a very little boy. And I'm very thankful for parents who couldn't afford a very expensive piggy bank for me, so we took three little baby food jars, taped them together with duct tape, and labeled them, Lord, Savings, Me. And whether I made a dime, I had to exchange that for a nickel and, four, and five pennies. Boy, my math is pitiful. When I made a dime had to exchange it for a nickel and five pennies so that I could put the appropriate amount of my earnings of a dime into the right little baby food jars. I'm thankful that before I could ride a tricycle, I knew what I was supposed to do with money, and I praise my father for it. Two of them, my father in heaven and my father on earth, for teaching me this. Because I've seen it work all my life, and it doesn't matter whether I've seen it work or not, it says it works. It says it works. Now, here's what I want to get before we move on, and we need to hurry. <laughs> Verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Brethren, there are devourers that have been unleashed 
on us and our nation and the nations of the world. And they are bureaucratic, socialistic governments. Let me just take a little aside with this verse. There are devourers that will destroy. They are consuming the wealth of the nations with welfare programs and waste in all sorts of areas that are destroying the nations. So if they're trying to bail themselves out and they know that they are reaching an end where they will be unable to bail themselves out and nations are going to start to fall, and I am talking about the developed nations of the world. I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. God had sent devourers on Israel, canker worms. Joel is an example. He sent devourers on them, Midianites, the the days of Gideon, when they would wait until harvest time and come in and consume all the harvest. What does the Bible say Gideon was doing when the Lord found him? He was threshing wheat secretly behind the wine press because all their food was being taken. And brethren, there are devourers right now, but the Lord can rebuke the devourers for our sakes if we'll be faithful in what He's called us to do in tithes and offerings as in this case. Let's go to the next lesson. Well, you can still be blessed in verse 12. And you can be called a delightsome family and a delightsome land. The Lord can have mercy on those around you if you'll be faithful to your God in giving. Verses 13 through 15. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Stout. You arrogant Jews, yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? And that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. This is the error of judging God's will in a person's life by circumstances. They were looking at circumstances and they were seeing God's curse upon their nation. It doesn't matter if we've lived mournfully. It doesn't matter what we've done. No one's getting ahead. And he's saying that is, that is fallacious reasoning. That is wrong. Your words are stout against me to talk that way. There is a difference between the righteous and the wicked. And we move on. Verses 16 through 18. Then they. Here is a different group of people. These are not the ones speaking stoutly against the Lord. These are not the ones asking, where is the God of judgment? Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Thank you for the testimony, Adam. Then they that feared the Lord, thank you for the testimony being possible, Jerry. Then they that feared the Lord, thank you, Scott, for calling me. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened. The Lord heard it. He was mindful of it, and it affected him. The Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. And the righteous trampled on the ashes of the wicked when they were burned up, because chapter 4 tells us so. 
Chapter 4 tells us that the great and terrible day of the Lord reduced the wicked to ashes and the righteous walked on them. The righteous were delivered out of Jerusalem. Jesus told them, when you see this city encompassed with armies, then flee, for the desolation thereof is nigh. And they got out of that city, and they were preserved, and they were the jewels of God. They were His diadem, as Isaiah declares about them. There is a difference made. And what makes the difference? They fear the Lord, they speak often one to another, and the Lord hearkens. They shall be mine in the day when I make this great judgment and difference among men. This is the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before that great and terrible day of the Lord, I'll send Elijah the prophet, which was John the Baptist. Back to verses 3 and 4. The Lord Jesus Christ came. But verse 2, very comparable to the words of John the Baptist, who may abide the day of His coming. What's He going to do? Verses 3 and 4. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Jesus Christ was going to come and make a refining change in that nation, so that the wicked would be burned up and become ashes under the feet of the righteous, but He would purify a new group of priests, they would offer unto Him offerings in righteousness. And it would be like the great days of worship under David, under Solomon, under Hezekiah, under Josiah. It would be like the old days when the Lord delighted in the worship of His people. And brethren, that is our assembly this day. And it is what you do today and tomorrow with the lips that God has given you. God has made you by the Lord Jesus Christ kings and priests to offer sacrifices acceptable unto Him by Jesus Christ. When when it says He purified the sons of Levi, the only language that Malachi's hearers would have understood is to use the sons of Levi, the priesthood, the Levites, those that had the ministry of worshiping God, He's going to purify them. But this is describing New Testament religion. Because this is John the Baptist and Jesus Christ making the change. This is not him improving the Levitical priesthood because he abolished the Levitical priesthood at his first coming. This is not him reinstituting animal sacrifices and improving them. He abolished animal sacrifices at his first coming. This is him changing you and me to be a royal priest. Do you know that you're from two tribes? Do you know how impossible that is? You're from the tribe of Levi and you're from the tribe of Judah because God has made you a king and a priest. It says that. You know, you know, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, but that's not where we're going. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to believe that, Hillary. I don't want people to think that I was speaking to Jennifer. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Oh, this is beautiful. Amen. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll burn up the dross, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. He told the woman of Samaria, there's a new religion coming. Not in your mountain, nor in Jerusalem are they going to be worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. Revelation 1.5 tells us He's made us kings and priests unto our God. We can go straight into the presence of God. There is no veil between us. Jesus Christ has opened up a new and living way. You can go boldly right into the presence of God, which Aaron couldn't do. 
You say, well, what sacrifices? What sacrifices can I bring him? Does he want a thousand rivers of oil? Where do we go to find the answer to that question? Micah chapter. Does he want the fruit of your womb, your wife's womb? Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. The sacrifices are very different. They're sacrifices from the heart. They're sacrifices of righteousness. But in Hebrews chapter 13, please notice at verse 10, Paul to Hebrew Christians, keeping them from going back to the Hebrew religion of Moses. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Paul is telling Hebrew Christians that we have an altar. And the Levites that are working in Jerusalem don't have a right at our altar. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the camp. These Hebrews were outside the camp. They had been thrown out of synagogue worship. They had been thrown out of temple worship because they'd been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's comforting them by saying, Jesus was crucified outside the camp. Remember, they took him out of Jerusalem to a hill called Golgotha and to Calvary where he was crucified. Verse 12, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Notice Paul's argument that they were not counting on the earthly Jerusalem, they were counting on the heavenly Jerusalem. Here's Paul giving us a spiritual interpretation of how to understand the time of Reformation and what John and Jesus did to the worship of God. Right here. We have an altar they can't come to. They They think they have a continuing city here on earth. We're waiting for a continuing city. Jesus went outside the camp, so don't feel bad that they won't let you back in the camp. You just stay outside the camp bearing his reproach, going to his altar, and being part of his city. Keep going with me. Verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice. Were there sacrifices and offerings back in Malachi chapter 3, verses 3 and 4? That we shall offer in righteousness? By him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, in Hebrews thirteen fifteen. By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, I love it when He explains Himself. When the Holy Spirit explains exactly what He means. That is, the fruit of our lips. Not the fruit of our flocks. Not the fruit of our fields. Not the fruit of our orchards. Not the fruit of our vineyards. That is, the fruit of our lips. Giving thanks to His name. But to do good and to communicate Forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. What did Malachi chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 say? That there was going to be a renovation and a refining by the Lord Jesus Christ, so that there would be worship acceptable to Him, like in the days of David, Solomon, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And what are those sacrifices? The sacrifice of praise to God continually, giving thanks to His name by the fruit of our lips, and doing good and forgetting not to communicate. And communication here is not emails. Communication here is dollars and cents. It's communicating goods. It's communicating charity. It's communicating things and help, financial help, 
to others. With those sacrifices of the New Testament, God is well pleased because they're done through Jesus Christ and sanctified by Him. He has refined you. You are a priest. You are a priest. I am not your priest. I am your servant. There is a, there are churches on earth that claim to have priests in the ministry. You are the priests and your kings. Your kings and priests. The Bible calls you a royal priesthood. First Peter chapter two. What's the sacrifice and offering that we bring? Praise continually to his name. How costly is that? It's the best thing you'll ever do in life. Who in the world wants to cheer for the Carolina Panthers? What a waste of breath. What a waste of saliva. Oh. Or the Clemson Tigers. Or what do they call them down there in Columbia? Would they actually have a mascot named a Gamecock? We get to praise God continually, giving Him the fruit of our lips. And that is well-pleasing to God because Jesus Christ has done all the work shed all the blood, and laid down His own life. We don't have to do any of that. We get to praise His glorious name. He has refined His worship. He's refined His priesthood. We are all together, pastor and people, the sons of Levi. Remember, Jesus in His first coming destroyed the Levitical priesthood. It says so in Hebrews chapter 7. This is Hebrews chapter 13. And this is the offering that we bring. To do good, to communicate, don't forget those things. But chiefly, we want to praise His great and glorious name. Do you love to praise Him? You know, there were two young men that wanted to get up here and praise the Lord. And I know that there were others of you, and I'm, I just want all of you to make sure that you're like the, the one leper that came back and with a loud voice fell down on his face and worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just sing His praise and glorify Him. Let's make our boast in the Lord. Those are sacrifices acceptable to God equal to and better than 120,000 sheep offered by Solomon at the dedication of his temple, better than 22,000 oxen offered by Solomon at the dedication of his temple, because the Bible tells us so. He wants worship back like the good old days with David, Solomon, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And we do that because we're kings and priests. We're the sons of Levi, refined by the Lord Jesus Christ. He burned up the wicked. He brought salvation to us. And all he wants from us is to sing his praise. What a Savior. What a Savior. Malachi chapter 3, verse 4, Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord. Pleasant unto the Lord. Well, pleasing to the Lord. Hebrews 13, Malachi 3. It's not that difficult. And do you know what? Most of the Christian world, in our city and other places, think this chapter is out there. They think the sacrifices are going to be restored animal sacrifices. This is the first coming of Jesus Christ. This is a description of us. Do you love what it has to say? Where is the God of judgment? He came. John the Baptist warned, Jesus Christ came, destroyed the nation. Because he had a new nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and it's made up of you and me, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what sacrificial system does he have? Not lambs. Not oxen, not goats, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We ought to offer to God praise continually. Let's keep a sacrifice on the altar. We have an altar that they don't, they can't approach. They crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, so they can't come to our altar. Our altar is where Jesus Christ offered himself without spot to God and was received. 
we come into his little temples all over the earth and we worship him with the fruit of our lips. This is the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. This is what my good brothers and my dear friends like to talk about with each other and with me. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The costly offering has already been offered and accepted. The price has been paid for us. What do we get to offer? Praise and thanksgiving. Let's give it to them. All this week, the rest of this day, may Jesus Christ be praised and God be well pleased with sacrifices sanctified by him. And if you don't think that your praise is good enough, if it comes from a sincere heart, the Holy Spirit of God will praise for you with groanings which cannot be uttered. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit, sanctified by the work of Jesus Christ, the offering made, let's give him the sacrifices of praise. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.